Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is the 24th of the 11th. It's another gloriously freezing Wednesday. Michael, how have you been? I won't lie, Gary, so I won't answer. Silence is often the best approach. Yeah, when you're a hero martyr like me, it's best. So we'll be running through a little bit of information about Amnesty Ireland and its funding. Amnesty, as we all know, rather famously, does not accept government funding. But a recent PQ seems to indicate that um, hmm, that might be not exactly on the level, or full and frank information. We'll also be talking about some of the internal communication difficulties the government seems to be having with Neffet. If you've been listening to the information that's been coming out of the government in relation to COVID, antigen testing, PCR, you might have found it a bit confusing, given that there seem to be a multitude of voices saying different things, sometimes officially and sometimes not. Just a bit odd, really. And then we'll be talking about the uh, government's plans to have a million electric vehicles on the road by 2030. We've looked at the figures uh, with the help of uh, an outside expert, or rather an outside expert has looked at the figures and we've republished it. And it looks like the figures for the electric vehicles they plan to have on the road by 2030 are so clearly nonsensical that it raises the immediate question why do we keep letting them say it as if it's possible? So on our friends Amnesty International, very, very dear friends of the show, some listeners may have donated to Amnesty, and we don't hold that against you. Mm. Amnesty, particularly traditionally, have done a lot of really valuable work. The issue has been in the last year, it seems that their focus has gone off their traditional areas of expertise, and more into, shall we say, highly contentious social issues in which there are donors. Once upon a time, Amnesty International was about writing letters to prisoners of conscience who were being held, lawfully or unlawfully, by repressive regimes across the world. And it was a way of reminding these very often brave women and men who, because of their principles and their conscience, found themselves in this predicament because they would not bend to tyranny. And it was a way for people outside of the world to remind them or to tell them that they had not been forgotten, that they had not been left uh, to drop down the, the memory hole. And that was a very noble and valuable thing to do. What many of the current, I don't know what you call them, obsessions, policy obsessions of, of amnesty today, very hard to see that this is the same organisation. It is. It was always an NGO that was difficult to criticise, uh, particularly in the olden days. Not just for the nature of the work, but also because of you know their commitment to not receiving government funds. I'm sure you heard that commitment, Michael, given many times. Oh, many, many times, and and in different ways, different different syntaxes, shall we say, which always makes me curious. If you go to, onto Amnesty Ireland's website for instance, they mention that uh, Amnesty International does not seek or accept funding from states for our campaigning work. If you go to how are we funded, they say we neither seek nor accept any funds for human rights research from governments or political parties, and we accept support only for businesses that have been carefully vetted. So Michael, you can imagine my surprise when I looked at a recent PQ. Carol Nolan put in a PQ asking what uh, what money has been given to Amnesty Ireland and Amnesty International. And it turns out, Michael, Amnesty International has been accepting funding from the Irish government for at least the last decade. But not for human rights research and not for 
campaigning. Am I right? That's what they say. But then I looked at the department's, sorry, well, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, so Simon Coveney's, explanation of what the money was uh, used for and where it was coming from. So it went to them through Irish aid. And the money was used to support human rights education, including through the Right Sparks Continuous Professional Development Course for primary school teachers in development education and human rights. Okay. Now that, to me, Michael, sounds like a campaign. It's even got a name. It has a campaign kind of a feel to it, yeah, I suppose. So I went back and I looked at Amnesty Ireland's website again to see had I misread where they said they wouldn't accept funding from states for our campaigning work. And I think I found where I made a mistake, Michael. Which is? See, it says Amnesty International does not seek or accept funding from states for our campaigning work. Amnesty Ireland is actually a legally distinct entity. Yes, I would wonder if an average member of the public, hearing that Amnesty doesn't accept funding from states for this kind of work, might be confused about that, or may think perhaps Amnesty Ireland is making a statement which they are, shall we say, we're not entirely sure they're now making, or have ever made. Right. Hmm. It's all angels on pins anyway, isn't it? There's a great word which we like to use a lot, which is fungible. Is the money fungible? And well, money must be fun. So, can you? Is it ring fenced and protected, and has to only go on this, or is it? Is there some sense? Is there some sense which the money can go anywhere? The fact is, if you have a, it, doesn't even make any difference whether it is ring fenced or not. Because if it costs me a million quid to run an organisation, and I get half a million to pay for the the rent and the offices and the salaries and the light and the heat and the printing and the cleaning services, whatever, which is not a campaign and it's not research at all. It's just basic infrastructure. That means that whatever money is left over, they can spend the rest. So it, 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 it is effectively money that goes into an organisation is the same as money. It's just money. It's, it's, it's all water. It will find its own level. It will seep into whatever cracks it can find. And you can direct it in one way, but you're just directing once you're drinking water this way it's still water going the other way it doesn't make any difference in the absence of that support to pay for the rent and the rates those campaigns would not be possible those campaigns are only possible because somebody's paying for the rent and for electricity so it is essentially it's a philosophical question of identity whether or not you are funding x or y when you put money into an organization it's it's all a bit of a performance really it's just an odd thing you would think if you were a global NGO, Michael, you would want to be you know, as forthright with people as possible. But this seems like it's um, slightly confusing, Michael, well, to highlight all of these ways you don't accept funding from states. But forget the you will actually accept funding from... Well, actually, maybe the argument here, Michael, is that Irish aid is not the Irish state. I mean, it's entirely controlled by the Irish state. It comes under the purview of the Department of Foreign Affairs. But maybe they're going to say, you know, it's um, it's not actually the Irish government. It's not the Irish government. The decisions regarding who is funded and how much they're funded, to what degree they're funded, are made by independent actors within Irish aid who are not subject to pressure or direction from either the Minister for Foreign Affairs or any member of the government but rather act in a completely independent and transparent way. And, you know, they could argue that. Yeah, I think the problem there is if you go into Irish Aid's uh, promotional material, they say that Irish Aid is managed by the Development Cooperation Division of the Department of Foreign Affairs. Mm. And I know actually from previous experience that if you try and 
send a uh, press query to Irish Aid, it in fact goes directly to the Department of Foreign Affairs. Almost like it is part of the Irish government. Yes, I mean, on the face of it. But there may well be within that structure another or other structures that are protected, maybe by Chinese walls, maybe legally, maybe by the strength of character of the independent nature of the people who occupy the positions. I I don't know. Or maybe they don't, maybe they don't think this is research and they don't think it's a campaigning uh, platform or they don't think it's campaigning and therefore it's perfectly acceptable for for them to do this. It's just odd that um, if you go to Amnesty website, you go on to how are How is Amnesty Ireland funded? Well, then they don't mention that they actually will accept state money in certain instances, but they specifically tell people that they neither seek nor accept any funds for human rights research from government or political parties. Because if you just say that and you don't follow on with any further information, I think the general public might think you're saying we accept absolutely no money from states. But that's not what they're saying. It's not not what is written. What the general... What the general public may or may not construe is the responsibility of the general public. It's not the responsibility of amnesty. God bless them. Even if you might argue that, as presented, the general public, on quick sort of glancing reading, might come to an incorrect conclusion. Yeah, I just wonder if the average amnesty donor who's reading things about how amnesty requires the support of its members and donors to keep its work going realises that amnesty is taking money from the uh, Irish head. Now, actually, we should talk about the actual figures, Michael. Yeah. So depending on the year, over the last decade, the smallest annual commitment amnesty has gotten from Irish aid was €13,000. That's small fries in, you know, the way the scale these things operate with. Other years, however, they get up to, you know, they get near the 80,000 mark. You keep that going for a decade, it's not a bad amount of money. Well, I would rather have 77,000 euro than not have 77,000 euro. That is my philosophy of life in a nutshell, Gary. But I just wanted to mention it because I'm curious if people actually know that Amnesty is accepting money from the government, despite seeming to say it isn't. You wanted to mention it, Gary, because you... You enjoy nothing better than slagging off Amnesty International. I have I have a very specific interest in mentioning these sort of things about NGOs that say they don't accept state funding, but yet somehow seem to end up with an amount of government funding in them. Like was it the ICCL, Michael, that said the same thing and then we're able to actually go, actually no, they've been taking money from the EU hand over fist. Lovely, lovely money. I mean I understand it. There's nothing wrong with money. No, nothing. If anybody wants to uh, send some in, please do. We'll give it a good home. So one thing I just wanted to mention, we don't have uh, much of the details on this, but I did want to just point it out. In the last show, we were talking about how Whitegate Power Station had come back online, and I was saying I had written it up, but I wanted to be nice to them, just in general. Mm -hmm. So Whitegate Power Station came back, and then a day later apparently went offline. Slipped offline, like a trout slipping off. A hook that it had only barely taken. I've been trying to get confirmation from that from Board Gosh as to what happened and when it's coming back. But when I sent in the question, instead of answering it themselves, they put me on to Tenio, who are handling their PR. And I got a response back that says, now, when you say it tripped, what exactly did you mean? Because, I mean, some, you know, these are technical things. I'm like, you're, you're trying to debate the definition of the word I use. Is the fucking plant online? Uh, <laughs> is it on and when will it be on next can can it make can it make my kettle boil so i can have tea 
That's what you want to know. It's not a good time for Whitegate to go down, although it was a very good time for us to publish a uh, article on nuclear power from 18 for Zero, an advocacy group uh, for uh, basically uh, nuclear power in Ireland, or for Ireland to at least seriously consider moving in the direction of nuclear power. Because wind generation for the last few days has been totally abysmal. Well, it really has been extraordinarily bad. November... An island in the North Atlantic in November, you usually have a fairly decent expectation of quite a bit of breeziness and sometimes some extreme breeziness. But no, it's been remarkably quiet to the extent that, in fact, we had weather warnings for severe fog in the south of the country because the conditions were so still. And it's not helping the old uh, the old uh, numbers for the for the generation on the basis that there is a certain normal predicted level and our average historical level of generation because which and those numbers have just gone for a burden as they would say in the first world war it has been i think quite a good example of a lot of when we're talking about wind and we're trying to make the point that it's not just the amount of energy you can produce it's the amount of energy you can produce reliably and if the energy supply is variable what do you have in the background to actually pick that up and make sure that you don't have massive swings and blackouts because your entire energy grid is just built on something which can turn on a dime. I mean, there were hours there in the last couple of days where an hour you know, in the morning we might be producing 40 megawatts in an hour of wind energy. And then later in the day we will be producing 600. I mean, that level of variability is not good. Yeah, the question with the... Alternatives, or shall we say, the renewables that we've been trying to get across, I suppose. The question is not what can it produce, but what can it be guaranteed to produce? Because the wind blows, the wind does blows not. We all still will want to boil the kettle and to turn on the computers and run the data centres. So there has to be electricity. And if the wind doesn't blow, that means we're going to have to have a parallel system, will we not? And this is this is a very, very useful uh, a very valuable example of the nature of reliance on renewables without or in the absence of a backup parallel system. Yeah, we seem to have worked on the basis that we'll just turn the entire grid to wind and then sure it'll be fine. We just need to hit the large numbers. Yeah. But I think that legitimately does confuse a lot of people because you hear occasionally, particularly from the environmental groups, oh, today wind produced this incredible amount. And then you've got this sort of confusion as to, well, if it's producing that, why aren't we uh, Why aren't we doing better? Yeah, there's also uh, this, I know this sounds like, but I, I heard um, a politician talking about this recently and I it displayed that there hasn't really been a whole lot of thinking from A to B on it, where somebody said, you know, what about the problem when there isn't enough wind and we don't have a backup system, we don't have enough backup capacity in the grid? And his response, Gary, was, that's why we have to have more and more wind turbines. We have to have a surplus of turbines to be able to create this guarantee. And I think in his head, and I just wonder if, this is something which is more widespread, that the answer to the problem of a deficit in generation is to expand the number of turbines to, to generate, ignoring the fact that if they're blowing, if, they're, if the wind isn't blowing, it's just not blowing. And it doesn't matter how many turbines are there, they're all just standing there, not turning. No, I think the, the problem there is that that actually makes the, uh, the issue directly worse, because more of your grid is comprised of wind. And so when there's a problem, more of your grid is down. 
Like, I mean, you, uh, what we're talking about there, the difference between the morning and an evening on some of those days, you can't run so anything on the basis that, well, you'll you'll hit a certain level at one point, and then later in the day, it may be 1,500% higher. Or maybe it'll be 75, 80, 90% lower. Maybe, maybe what they're getting at, or my chap was getting at, was the idea that you have to have capacity in, say, off the coast of Donegal, and then off the coast of Mayo, and off the coast of Fastnet, and off Rosslair. And if we just basically surround the whole island with turbines, that there will be somewhere where there'll be a breeze. But we will have to basically cover the whole of the island, and 200 miles out, uh, to to be absolutely sure that somewhere there will be a breeze. But I wonder, will a breeze be enough, Gary? The amusing thing there is that with the amount of turbines we would need to build to hit like 100% sustainability using wind... Do you know it's really bad for an electrical grid to have too much power in it? Well, why is that? Grids can only handle so much power. They can only handle so much energy before it starts to damage them. Can't you just release it into the air? No, you have to start turning on and off turbines, which is really inefficient. I mean, you can sell a lot of it, depending on you know the infrastructure to do so. But it is there are a couple of places in the world, uh, particularly in Scotland, where there is simply too much power generation from wind and tidal and it's actually a significant problem for them and now you know that sh- that we should have such problems on the subject of energy before we move on to a, a different topic there was an article that we put up there in grip the other day uh, it was by a guy called dennis murphy who works in blackwater motors it was looking at the government's plans for electric vehicles on the road because Delightfully, Michael, they finally released some of the numbers of the breakdown of of when they expect those cars and vehicles to be on the road. Uh, Colin Burke put in a a PQ and Eamon Ryan got back. And it's nonsense, Michael. No, say it ain't so. You know when you, you see a figure and you look at it and then you're like, maybe I just don't know enough about this area. So you wander off and look into it. And then you're like, no, no, that's uh, no, that's absolutely, I'm right. That's nonsense. Nonsense how so? So problem is this, Michael. Every year they show more and more electrical vehicles being uh, sold. Yes. 59% of those 1 million electric vehicles they think will come online in 2028, 2029, and 2030. Okay. Now, the problem there, Michael, is that in order for that to be the case, you are looking at total car sales in those years around the highest level that we saw during the boom, the highest vehicle sales. So, yeah. So I think what may have happened, Michael, is someone in the department has a little formula that predicts how much electric vehicles will increase every year and didn't actually look at car sale data to say am I projecting more electric vehicles will be sold that year than it's likely total cars will be sold that year. I keep using car and vehicle interchangeably. I, I mean vehicle. But to be to be fair, what they, what they may be doing is they're taking the, the gross global number of sales, say in 2006, 2007, 2008, right? But remember, while obviously this was uh, a massive uh, boom, boom time for the sale of motor cars and people were buying two and three motor cars for themselves. The population increase that will have occurred between 2000 and, say, 2005, you're talking about another million and more than a million people. So maybe, you're, maybe your global car sales will be getting closer to your historical highs than you would have otherwise thought. In 2019, we sold new passenger cars. Now, obviously, there's used markets. There's 
commercial vehicles as buses and coaches, things like that. We sold 117,000 cars in 2019. 2018, you're about 125,000 cars. 2016 was a pretty good year. They sold 146,000 new passenger cars. And then about another 30,000 commercial vehicles. Now, that's new, so obviously there's a used market. So keep that figure in mind, Michael. Yes. In 2030, the government is projecting we will sell we will sell 220,000 electric vehicles. Now, maybe they're thinking that there's going to be a massive used market in electric cars, and we're going to be bringing electric cars in from uh, outside, and they're going to end up, the prices will drop, we'll end up in the secondary market. If there's going to be that market for a second-hand car, there's going to be a massive market for second-hand electric cars everywhere in the world. Because the fact is, there's a problem with electric. Uh, there's a there's a kickoff problem with with secondhand electric, where we are told that you're basically going to get around ten good years out of the kind of batteries that are being sold in electric cars today and for the last X number of years, right? So there is automatically a closed number of cars that are going to be available for secondhand for the secondhand market. Even, even, I've said this before, if you go into Dundeal today and look at the number of electric cars that are available and look at the prices, this is not going to be an Irish-only issue. There are going to be people looking to buy, because there are going to be people all over the Western world looking to buy electric cars who cannot afford to buy new electric cars. The market for second-hand electric cars is going to be incredibly strong. So the idea that we're going in fact, it's going to be a big problem here because we've historically relied on importing our second-hand cars from the United Kingdom, perhaps parts of Europe and Japan, and the domestic market has not really been able to maintain to feed the requirement for second-hand cars, which, at a very gross number, Gary, and the very rough, rough number, I would say around forty-five percent of, if you take the total global number of cars, not not vehicles but cars sold, you say if you're you're selling one hundred and twenty one hundred and twenty thousand new cars, that will be around fifty-five percent of the market, and second-hand will be around forty-five percent, but and that's a very, very rough number, but somewhere in around our, the the domestic market is not fed by uh, domestically available second-hand cars. And there's no way in the world they're going to come close to be able to supply that market with second-hand electric cars. So that, no, I'm sorry, that's out the window if they're talking about that. So I will, I will put a link to this article below. The general gist of it is that these numbers are practically impossible. Murphy's estimation is that in order to sell the amount of cars, like 600,000 electric vehicles in three years at the end of this decade, that the annual car market would have to hit 285,000 units for three consecutive years. He says that's just not possible. But he also reminds us, Michael, of something that uh, I had totally forgotten. The prediction they gave in 2008 that there would be 250,000 electric vehicles on the road by 2020. And then we ended up with about 5,000. Sorry, could you repeat that? They predicted there would be 250,000 EVs on the road by 2020. There were about 5,000. Wow. Now, that doesn't, or I don't know, that doesn't include presumably hybrids. It's just straight EVs. Wow. 5,000 as opposed to 250. They're not good, are they, at the old predicting thing? And the problem there is that this changeover is expected to be a large percentage of the reduction in transport emissions. And that's, you know, the results of the question of whether or not the grid can actually handle this many cars. But, Michael, I don't think that's going to be a problem. (laughs) No, no, probably not. But anyway, I will link the article below. Uh, Dennis definitely knows more about this than I do. And it's interesting... I think the 
most interesting thing with it is they've been talking about this for years uh, in different ways. The figures have changed slightly, but the general targets have remained pretty consistent for the last couple of years. And if this is the general view of the industry, that the numbers are simply impossible, why has there been no policy consequence of that? And I did look around and actually even RTE had reported a couple of academics looking at these figures and saying that's just not possible. That's not going to happen. But they keep saying it, even though it appears that no one actually thinks this target will be hit. Well, yeah, but Kerry, this goes back sorry, to the observation that I made about a variety of this government's policies. That really it's a misnomer to call them policies or plans. They are prayers. They are nothing. They are simply prayers. You could, or if you want to be secular, you could call them aspirations. But they're not planned. When I saw this uh, data, I looked at it. It didn't make any sense to me. But I went, I don't know enough about this area. So I pulled the information on new passenger car registration, new light commercial vehicle registration, new heavy commercial registration, and uh, sales of buses and coaches from Simi. And I plotted every year down to 2000, just so I could then look at that, look back at these figures and go, no, no, he's right, that's nonsense. (laughs) But that took me like 10 minutes, Michael. So has no one in government 10 minutes to spare? They're very, very very busy people. Very, very busy. So just a a final thing before we close. We were talking about Neffet the last while, going from I wonder what changed in Neffet to get them to back antigen testing to Tony Houlihan very much is not backing antigen testing. And now I think we're currently at a, God, there's a lot of Neffet members and people associated with Neffet turning up in the media the last week or so, talking about all of the problems with antigen testing. And oftentimes in articles where you need to get quite far into them before it mentions that the person talking is a member of Neffet. I just, I find it odd, Michael, considering that, you know, the variance with government policy, almost, and I wouldn't suggest this for a second, Michael, but I understand why people would think that one could perceive it as such, almost as if certain members of Neffet have deliberately decided to undermine government policy. There is absolutely no doubt, as this is clear as anything in this murky affair is clear, that there is a dis- there is a disagreement uh, between... I don't know if we can say Neffet, because, Gary, I don't know everybody who's in Neffet. I don't know if anybody knows everybody who's in Neffet. There are a lot of people in there. It seems to be unlikely that there would be 100% agreement even within Neffet on anyone. But there is a substan- there does seem to be substantial hesitancy within Neffet about the use of the antigen testing. And this is a hesitancy which is, has a historical pedigree back through the snake oil and, and beyond before that. And then we have, on the other hand, last year's uh, state site. What's Chief Scientific Officer, is that the title? Is that my... Yeah, it was the Chief Scientific Officer's report. Which was supportive of, and a number of other professional bodies, and also, uh, this is perhaps more, I don't know if it's more important, but certainly it's important, uh, significant amounts of inter- international practice where inter- antigen testing, large-scale antigen testing, was integrated into the uh, global state response in different places to the pandemic. Now, whatever is happening here, Gary, if we can be for, briefly for a moment actually serious, they have to get their acts together. And whatever their opinions on either side of this debate happen to be, and whoever is right about whatever, they need to do a proper, accurate, honest piece of public ed- health education on the use of antigen testing. 
so that there are i am absolutely certain that there are certain situations where it is not appropriate or that the pcr is necessary or that certain kinds of behaviors before it or after it are required whatever they happen to be there needs to be proper clear public health education and i'll give you my piece of anecdata on the base i listened to a person on the radio a couple of days ago talking about the use of antigen testing and saying well yeah it, it has its uses however for example one thing that was explicitly stated was if you are suffering from symptoms if you are symptomatic you should not use an antigen test you should apply directly for a pcr test because in the case of uh, that, you, that there have been experiences where people have been symptomatic and they're using them uh, they're taking them and they're getting negative results and they're going out and they are in fact infectious and people are using the antigen tests in the wrong way they're using them when they think they are they have symptoms they get they come back and they reassure themselves that they are not in fact infected with covid they just have a cold when the fact is they should have taken a pcr test because they were symptomatic they should have isolated taken the pcr test and waited for the results and they would have in fact have found out that they were infected and they should have taken themselves out of circulation and that the antigen testing is very bad in this case that it's not that accurate that you need the gold standard of the pcr test to work in this case and the pcr the, the antigen testing is good for say people who are using it on a very, on a regular recurrent basis perhaps going into uh, meat factories abattoirs that kind of thing where you wanted to catch people who are asymptomatic and if you could catch one or two people who were infected but asymptomatic and get them out that that would be a very good thing to do because it would stop the outbreak it would be a preemptive strike against the outbreak of a spreader now yesterday a friend of mine who was displaying symptoms of something not what you would call classical covid symptoms but gary i'd say these days the list of what is considered to be symptoms of covid have considerably widened since we started this whole process would you say that pretty well anything now yeah when the department talks about it there is a sort of um when they talk about people with symptoms there is a slight difficulty in that uh, it's now so broad it's indistinguishable from the flu yeah a cold Obviously, there are far more severe symptoms, but you'll be trapped. You'll be taken into that people with symptoms box very, very early. This person decided to go to a pharmacist. And rather than, they didn't buy the thing themselves. They, they booked into a pharmacist. The pharmacist explained what was going to happen. They explained the nature of the test. They did the test and then they, and then they, they waited and got the results. The pharmacist said, actually, these are very, very good for people who are symptomatic. The problem with the test is that it's not as sensitive as the PCR test, which is very sensitive. That really, the great thing about it is, if you are infectious, it will tell you that you are infectious straight off. It is 98% accurate in these situations. And if you come back and you're in the, and you are actually properly, you are in the infectious period, then it will tell you straight off and script blah. Anyway, the point is, there was a whole series of points at which these two people, two professional people, were completely at odds, completely at odds regarding the information about the correct or the incorrect or the suitable or the insuitable use of the antigen testing. That can't be allowed to go on because if that's whatever, that will mean whatever is happening, somebody's going to be using this incorrectly and in fact, maybe many people. They're going to have to get their act together and do some proper, correct, direct, clear, uh, information and do it on a fairly massive level because i know that there are lots and lots of people now using antigen testing they're going to the shops and they're buying them themselves and that's going to 
keep going on, particularly coming up to Christmas, where people are going to, if we do have a, a bit of a lockdown or the cases are going up and people are worried, they haven't, you know, waiting for their booster, didn't get their booster, elderly people, whatever, people are, going, are concerned, they are worried. They're worried about breakups, break, breakout cases of infection with people who are vaccinated. They're seeing the numbers in the ICU, all of these things. So they need proper, clear direction on how to use these tests, when to use these tests, and the consequent and what you should be doing in case A or case B, whether you're symptomatic or not. And by the way, brackets just here to finish this peroration, Gary. Yesterday, in the conversation with this person who was having the antigen testing, one of the reasons I went through a series of county after county after county in South Leinster, there was not, when I was looking, there was not an available appointment for a PCR test in any of the counties I looked at. So it is useless to say to people, oh, well, you have to get a PCR test, when there are no PCR appointments available. And how the fuck is it possible? Along with the failure to add to the ICU capacity or to our bed capacity in hospitals generally, two years into this, we're now in this stage and we ha- you can't have a walk-in PCR test. No, I've, I've also seen multiple people having that problem with PCR uh, testing, just being totally unable to get it. Um, the point you make about, uh, about disagreements, I've noted there is a continue, there has been a continuous split in this since this first started being talked about. There are people talking about whether or not it detects the presence of the virus, and there are people talking about whether or not it detects when you are infectious. And depending on the metric you choose, the tests are going to look much better or much worse. Because you're only concerned about when people are most likely to be infectious, antigen tests are fantastic, particularly when repeatedly used, uh, repeatedly used over a period of time. But that's not what Nefit talks about. Nefit just doesn't care about that. And I would suspect they don't care about that because were they to care about that, that would be a mark in favour of them, where it's much better to go well when you take uh, just the idea of infection. Yeah, it's going to miss some of those, where if you actually look at someone who's at, uh, who's at the peak of their infectiousness, it's highly unlikely to miss it. Yes. But that's not a debate that has happened. It's just, or one I think the public is even aware of. There was an example yesterday who they came across with. Somebody was tested four days running, and in each case, negative on the antigen test, PCR test, said no, that they had COVID. Problem is, well, not the problem, but the reality is, it was observed to me afterwards by a person working in the health system, that they may well have long since passed from the point of being infectious. And from the health public, you might say that from the public health point of view, that's the principal concern. If they're infectious, if they have COVID, but they are long past the point at which they are infectious, well, then they're not really that interesting. Gary, I do not know if that is true. That may be bollocks. Maybe I was being spun a line of bollocks by someone who themselves didn't understand the story. But that's the kind of thing that needs to be clarified. My understanding is that that is um, correct. After the after you are no longer infectious, you will still detect as having COVID-19 in the same way that a PCR will detect COVID-19 before you're terribly infectious. And the argument there is, well, the actual thing you care about is infectiousness. You care if, if you can pass it to other people, particularly if you're using them you know, uh, repeatedly over a period of time or before you go to events or before you go to things. Yes. That's the actual thing, not if you have it, but whether or not you can give it to others. Now, there is a debate about what is the, the limit at which, you know, what is the point at which you can actually give it to others? What is the lowest infectiousness you can have and still spread it? That's, that's a debate that's been going on pretty much over the length of this. 
There's not a debate that's been talked about in Ireland, though. We haven't really explained any of this to people. And I suppose people might say, well, surely I want to know if I have COVID rather than if I can infect people with it. Twitch, I would generally make the point, do you, though? Does it make any difference? If you're not infectious and you don't feel unwell, well, then you're fine. And if you do feel unwell, then you should go seek medical aid at that point. I don't know. Maybe in a, in a different disease, maybe in this you would argue normally that if you can know at the earliest possible juncture that you are in fact ill, that that gives medicine the best possible chance of managing successfully your disease. There may be, it's not, in other circumstances you'd say, there are antivirals that can be used very early on. That's not the case here. But there are a couple of remedies which are now available and which are, I think, almost certainly more effective delivered very early rather than once you get into the process and certainly if you're sort of late symptomatic they're probably going to be less effective so i think there probably is a a personal reason why you want to be aware as early as possible whether or not you you are infected but for the point if the big concern and that seems to be the big concern right now post-vax is the spread of the infection in the post-vaccinated population and the rising cases, well, then it seems to be that, that your, your fundamental question is not about the individual who is being treated, but rather how you manage infectiousness within the broader population. And that's, in that case, then the, the more pertinent question is, are you infectious? On the subject of tests and, and PCR tests, I recall Professor Carol Hennigan um, bringing up, it was brought in the BBC last year, now, Hennigan is, um, he's the director of the University of Oxford's Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. Um, he was also, he was involved in some role with the BMJ, but I can't recall exactly what. But he came out and he was talking about the fact that the tests can, you can be infectious for a week or so, but weeks later, you can still test positive for COVID-19 on a PCR test, but you're no danger to anyone around them. And at that point, if you've gone weeks outside of the peak without knowing that you have COVID, you're probably not in any great danger yourself. And that also, like that, that ties into a bit of a problem with case numbers because case numbers could be picking up those people. Although if you've been looking at the recent Irish case numbers, which have been uh, massive, a lot of that is backlog when you look into it. Thousands upon thousands of cases, which were just backlog cases. Which is not to say the numbers are low, they're definitely higher than we would like, but the, uh, the you know, here's 5,000 that's not quite the reality of the situation. Yes. But anyway, we will see what Neffet does. It's a bit odd the government is letting a group of, for the most part, civil servants run around the place, release individual press statements, go talk to national newspapers in a way that is contrary to government policy. Yeah, it's, it, you do wonder at times who's running the gaff. It's also, some, I would say, harmful for the public because... They're saying you can't use antigen testing because you'll get confused and you'll do it wrong. And then you try and listen to what the government is saying. And you're like, you're saying that. Then you're coming out and saying that. What is the what is the actual regulation here? What do you want done? Whatever about public confusion, the government seems rather confused about the direction it's going itself. Anyway, we will be back on Friday. Until then, mind yourself. All the best.